This time on Chew Diligence, Chef Jonathan Justice joins us in studio. I'm trying to do something that is, you know, about here and says something about here. From that black dirt chandelier. I jumped up (laughs) and I said, no, we can do this. Once we got all the mud and the dirt and everything off of it, it was uh, about 760 pounds. Oh, wow. To Justice Drugstore 2.0. Oh, no, we will reopen it. But it, it... We're going to be patient about it. Bizarre foods and groundhogs. Andrew looks at me and he says, there's your strawberry pie. And it tasted like strawberry glazed beef. And gold. He was widely considered the most important food writer in America. Welcome to episode three of Chew Diligence. We're so excited you're with us. And uh, Jill Silva and Lindsay Shively here getting ready to go beyond the plate to the people and places and cultures of Kansas City. And in studio, we're so excited to have Jonathan Justice with us. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thank you for having me, Lindsay. How are you doing, Jill? Great to see you. We like to start off Chew Diligence getting straight to the food. So we want to do a first the food segment. Uh, Jill and I actually both were talking about it and realized we both went for barbecue this week. I think we're starting to think about the American Royal, which is coming up real quick here, oh, don't yeah. you think? Um, yeah, so I went actually two places, but I'll start off. I went to Plowboys downtown um, and met someone for lunch, and we were actually talking barbecue throughout the whole lunch. Um, I got their biggest, I don't remember what it's called, but their classic platter with the burn ends and the brisket, and the. Uh, they had great sides, too. Um, so I like had all this meat and the woman behind the counter looked at me like I was ordering for an army and I (laughs) said, it's okay. I just want to try so many things and just give me that takeout styrofoam container right now. (laughs) And she did. So, Um, but they were just, you could see their eyes getting bigger and bigger because I was ordering so much food. (laughs) I love it. Well, what if you don't make it back for a while? You want to make sure you got a good sampling. I did. And so I had like macaroni and cheese. You don't see that as a side dish very often. So I tried that and coleslaw and it was all very good. Nice, nice smoke on the pulled pork. I love that you ordered. You said brisket and burn ends too. Yes. That's my that's my top two go-to barbecue wise, brisket and burn ends for sure. Uh, I ended up at Scott's Kitchen up by the airport. And oh. you, when you're driving up there, it is right before you take that big arch on 29 towards the terminals. It's right there. It's in a tiny little building. It was packed. My brother and I went. The brisket was fabulous. The burnt ends had this crunchy crust on them, and they were melting on the inside. And then same thing. The slaw was really fresh and tasty and jalapeno apple and different. And I thought it was really cool. Scott of Scott's Kitchen was talking to every table at lunch while we were in there. That is the cutest place. I really enjoy the decor and it is just small enough. Did you have any of their brisket tacos? My uh, brother had the pulled pork tacos. That's what I thought was so fascinating about this place. They've been open a year and they've made two national lists, one for uh, top 25 barbecue spots in the U.S. and then one for best burritos. Yeah. For really f- and well-known publications, travel and leisure, food and wine, like th- getting on both of those was pretty impressive. And I, th- I think it lived up to the hype. Absolutely. And I think he was a former competition cooker. Um, so, Ribbons and trophies on the wall. So we're both we're both t- uh, talk about trophies. Oh, my gosh. Over at Plowboys, just a whole case full of them. So, 
Yes, this is a really interesting new um, thing that we're seeing now that restaurants are coming off the competition circuit. Yeah, it's really fun for us to have a place to go Monday through Friday or whatnot, instead of having to wait all year, you know. Absolutely, but we will be going to the granddaddy of them all. Yes. (laughs) I'm excited. I think I'm going to need you to teach me how to American Royal. Oh, I can do that. (laughs) I know how. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. And Scott's Kitchen is up in the Northland where one of the most amazing restaurants in Kansas City area has been for so long, Justice Drugstore. And Jonathan Justice is here with us. Thank you for coming. And what's new with you, Mr. Justice? Wow, what's new with me? Um, uh, Let's see. Opened a restaurant, uh, temporarily closed a restaurant, looking for another space for a restaurant. Um, Excellent. I don't know. (laughs) Nothing really. Nothing, nothing going on. Uh, Jonathan right now is uh, operating Black Dirt just south of the plaza. That's right, on the corner of 51st and Main. It's our new restaurant. It is the kind of little sister baby bistro, if you might, to Justice Drugstore. Although right now it's just its own thing while uh, we are uh, currently looking for a new space for the drugstore. I know people are all ears about that because I thought that was it was one of my favorite meals of the last 10 years in Kansas City was a random Friday night at Justice Drugstore. And what I thought was so amazing is you had been open for several years at this point. This is just a couple years ago. Everything was perfect. Everything was so precise and beautiful. And even the little port pipe cups at the end of the meal for the port were so fun. And, and every detail was thought of. And that has to be a lot of work for you to continue that level of preciseness. You know, it, it is, but I, um, I have very serious, um, OCD <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I, I, the details are very, very important to me. They, um, I can't let little details go. I have to, uh, if I don't tend them, then it, it tends to, get to me and it starts uh, working on my on my psyche. <laughs> so Justice Drugstore, when I walked in the first time, I looked over at the bar and I thought, mm, that's a bunch of mad scientists in a laboratory over there. <laughs> then I look at the open kitchen and I'm like, these people are so serious about what they're doing in a good way. Um, just pans flying, things happening, get out to the table, fabulous, wonderful food. And so much of it local. And I know that there have been a lot of terms to describe Justice Drugstore. I think farm to table. I think I've called you locavore more than a few times. What what term best described what you did at Justice Drugstore? And how is that a little different than what you're doing at Black Dirt, but still the same? Well, I would think it's more of a phrase than a term. It would be region-specific cuisine, nose-to-tail Root to stem, farm to table, foraging. That about covers it all. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I was trying to find it in one word, but I guess I didn't quite do it. (laughs) But you know that I really care about that that very local feel. And um, you were doing it to an extreme, (laughs) if I may say that, um, in in a positive light, um, before many, many other chefs were doing that. And tell me how that influenced then black dirt. Well, let me back up a second. That You know, um, the reason and I think I was intrigued about coming back to where I grew up and doing this, and it wasn't a plan. It wasn't like we moved here and said, oh, we're moving here to open a restaurant. We were passing through, and 
the building where the drugstore is I, that I just sold very recently had just become vacated. And my wife, Camille, had said, you know, we might consider putting a restaurant in there. And I, and I thought it was an incredibly stupid idea. And, but I started thinking about what we might be able to do there culinarily. And we had had great meals in Kansas City over the years, um, you know. But I never felt that if you go past barbecue and say I'm fried chicken, you know, chicken fried steak, pork tenderloins, I didn't feel on a higher level anyone was really celebrating what was here culinarily on a little bit higher level. And when we decided to do the drugstore, I decided that I wanted to do a food that said something culturally and geographically about who we are and where we live. And if you're going to do that, it's going to dictate that you are going to use local ingredients to a fair extreme. I mean, I remember in the very beginning, we would use, say, Parmesan cheese or balsamic vinegar or truffles. And then more and more, I thought, you know, what do these say? What do these ingredients say about here? What do they say about who we are? And they don't say anything. So when you start carrying that to its logical conclusion, that means, well, we need to start culturing our own vinegars because if you want to really get what's here, native yeast in the air, fungal yeast, I mean, that is definitely going to drive flavors that are about here. So we got more and more to where we were really careful about not using ingredients from other places. And, of course, from the beginning, it even meant that we weren't going to do seafood. So we did a lot of different kinds of fish, but they were, uh, they were you know, river fish and uh, – so at Black Dirt, we are doing sustainable seafood. We uh, are doing a little bit more of a of a breadth of menu as far as ingredients because, well, <laughs> because there's after a while that it, it's like working with a palette that has three colors. And um, it, sometimes it's fun to uh, open some other tubes of paint. And uh, <laughs> so... At its heart, I think black dirt is, is I mean, I think I look at the flavor profiles and the techniques that we're using are, are very similar. But I don't have the space there, especially with the kind of volume that we're doing there to, say, culture vinegars or to make vermouths and things like that. I just don't have the storage space. I mean, even at the drugstore, we had to build outbuildings to house a lot of the projects that we were doing. And there was another thing back then was that you know, talking about in the bar program, when we got to this market, the only vermouth available was Gallo, uh, Martini and Rossi, and Senzano. I'm trying to think if there, was, if there was anything else. I mean, there were no really good variations of styles. You have like the Marseille style and the, the um, Milano style, and um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm slipping. There's another, uh, the three major styles you see, you know, the Torino style. And so when, in the beginning, when we started making our own vermouth, it was out of necessity, baking bread. We, you know, we baked all of our own bread because there, was no, there were no good bakeries near us that we could get to to get fresh bread easily. Um, and that's carried through at Black Dirt. We were doing all of our own baking there. And because it's a bigger kitchen, actually, our baking, we've been able to expand a lot compared to what we, we did at the drugstore. We're... Um, I mean, we're baking, I'm thinking, like four or five different kinds, distinctly different styles of breads. and Like uh, a Dutch crunch that I had at lunch recently, maybe? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's funny that how things can work in a parallel universe. When we were going to, you know, when we decided we we're going to have to do lunch at Black Dirt out of necessity because our set costs are so much higher than they were at the drugstore. 
Which only did dinner. Which only did dinner, right. And um, when we started thinking about what kind of lunch we wanted to do, I said to Camille, I was like, hey, you know, I really want to do Dutch Crunch. uh, It's a bread that's really, I didn't even realize at the time, it's a very San Francisco Bay Area thing. And but I didn't realize that, so I started calling around. This is before we were going to do our own, all of our own baking, and I was talking to local bakeries and asking them, like, "Hey, do you guys do a Dutch crunch?" And no one knew what I was talking about. Hmm. So we started it's mostly doing, for sandwiches. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a baguette that has um, you paint across the top of it a slurry of rice uh, rice uh, flour with a little bit of sesame oil and some sugar and uh, what happens is because that as the as the roll expands, that slurry won't, and it cracks the top of the bread. And it looks like oh. tiger stripes, but it also what it does is it creates um, a surface that instead of that baguette that can be kind of hard on the roof of your mouth, it, um, it it gives a softness to it, and also where things don't want to squeeze out the sides and the back as badly as they do on a on a baguette, yeah. and um, it's a great bread, and I. So we started doing this Dutch Crunch. We did a lot of research and spent, um, uh, I don't know, seven, eight months working on our Dutch Crunch recipe. Wow. (laughs) I mean, who would go into your restaurant and know that necessarily, you know? Well, there's – that's actually – there are things that I've spent years on. Wow. But uh, let me get it done. And I I posted like this Dutch Crunch Cubano on on Instagram. And then I got a a, a back. It's like, oh, it looks like you're copying Bay Boys. I'm like, Bay what? Who? <laughs> so there's a little great sandwich shop over on, off of what I think it's on Holly off of West 47th, and they're doing a Dutch crunch, and I guess had been, but not for a really long time. I think they beat us to it by maybe six months or so. But I, I didn't know anything about them, so then I had to go over and apologize and say, "Hey guys, we didn't uh, mean to do this." But in 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 that process, I think we've struck up kind of a relationship and. Uh, uh, we are determined the, between us to bring Dutch Crunch to Kansas City in the masses. I like that you teamed up. <laughs> I do love it, too. You know, you have a salad on the menu um, that I think somehow, to me, is so simple. Salad should be simple. And yet it has so many complex ingredients. And I'm talking about that Missouri Caesar, which sort of sums up so many of those words we re- we've been talking about. Can you kind of run us through some of the items there? Because you you really take a lot of time and thought on each little crouton, on each um, little piece of that that salad. Well, let's start with, I, I think the Caesar is one of those food items that has been so destroyed. And a Caesar dressing shouldn't have anything more than egg yolk, garlic, lemon, anchovy, um, olive oil, and a little salt. I mean, that's all it should have. And when I was originally thinking about this salad, I thought, what, you know, if we're going to do, and I love a great Caesar, and I and I, I really wanted to do one, but I thought it doesn't really, you know, Caesar's not about here. It was invented in uh, Tijuana, and uh, it's a very, you know, I don't think people think of it now, but it was a very much a California cuisine kind of thing originally. So I thought, what is going to happen to that salad to make it more about here. Well, one, there are no anchovies here. So we had already been playing with um, trout from Westover Farms down there, Steelville. And we fermented trout fillets and then cured them, dry cured them until they got very hard. 
And I started with those, and we would grate those into an egg yolk and garlic and oil to and lemon juice to get a Caesar dressing, but without the anchovy. And, and frankly, that we call them trout chovies. <laughs> they they're better than anchovy. It's really delicious. And then I thought also, I mean, the croutons, and we were baking, you know, we're baking bread. We could make, I know we could make great croutons, but I don't even know, I have no idea where I got this idea, but I, I thought it'd be really fun instead of croutons is to have little fried catfish bites because, I mean, fried catfish was one of those things I grew up with in the little country. Um, back then, no one called the meat and three. It's a very Nashville thing, but that's what they are. You know, you go in and you order your, your, um, whatever protein you're going to have, and you get three sides. And I think back that, you know, mashed potatoes and fried catfish is a weird combination, but it was a, a very common thing to see around. But anyway, that little fried catfish bites, and then with uh, the, um, you know, with the romaine and the dressing. And, um, and I've always liked grilled romaine. Um, I think it adds a little more a little more flavor, and that char is kind of nice on it. So that's what we ended up doing is charring the edges of the romaine, which is not not the first person to do that. Uh, no, but the combination and the thought process that I think you put into that, I think, Lindsay, yeah. you felt that when you Well, you made a you Caesar salad local, you know yeah. what I mean? And when you were saying when you began how hard it was to find local ingredients – you know how different is that for you now? Is it easier to find things like that, or do you still to prefer to do down to the element everything you can in house? Well, the, the the amount of like the amount of volume we're doing at Black Dirt necessitates that we I can't do some of the things that we did at Justice Drugstore. It's just not feasible. I mean, we would really take to the extreme, and on top of that, we. Um, you know, there's uh, what are called the laws of diminishing returns. When you uh, are trying to make a profit, it's really difficult to take things to that extreme and to be able to make a living at it as well. Mm. And um, But I, I am committed to that, especially when we reopen Justice Drugstore, which is not going to be next month or the month after. We're, but we're, you say that with certainty, which makes me very happy. Oh, no, we will reopen it. But it, it we're going to be patient about it. Um, I'm kind of jumping subjects here. I can't. That's okay. I can't think of how many times I've seen a great restaurant move from one space to another and then lose its there. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it? Uh, uh, the, the old saying, there's no there there anymore. No, yes. <laughs> and, and we want to be very careful that I think there was a certain charm to the drugstore that's hard to put your finger on, as the French would say, a, a je ne sais quoi. And well, the building itself was very special to your family, right? Yeah, that that grew up in that building. And that building was built in 1955 by my grandfather. Uh, the original location of Justice Drugstore was around the corner from uh, December 4th, 1914. And the property that the drugstore was on had been in my family over 178 years. Wow. So it was it was a real – we had to think really hard about, about selling it, but uh, – Sometimes you have to do what you're going to do because, well, you have to retire. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be another chapter. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, but we really, we thought this was a, a really good opportunity for us to make a change to the drugstore. It gave us an exit strategy to that phase, which is going to allow us to do the second phase. We just have to make sure that the next phase that we do, we do it properly and we don't 
let it lose its charm. Like it, it can't be in a strip mall. It can't be in a new building. We couldn't do it, say, where we're doing black dirt right now. It needs, it needs to be somewhere very specific, but I don't know what that specific is yet. Is there any part of you that wants that to, is, does it have to stay in the Northland for you? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it does actually. Um, and for maybe reasons, I don't know if I should state or not, but well, no, no, no. our, our well, investors, right. Our investors at, we own Justice Drugstore outright. We have investors at Black Dirt and, um, the drugstore was given an exclusionary clause in the non-compete part of our operating agreement. But our investors have been very good to us. And I think I would be, um, I'm trying to think of a, a polite way to say what I would be if I'd moved that restaurant south of the river. Oh, I see. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's Being fair to your investors. It, right. And, it, yeah. and, you know, I think legally we could do it, but ethically it would, it would be murky. And uh, I... Uh, I have no interest in uh, in murky ethics. And you want them to be their own distinct destinations. But yeah, that too. Speaking of distinct and then murky, some people would think that eating woodchuck might be kind uh, of a um, one of those murky things in life. But but tell us how I ended up on a set watching you uh, spit roast a woodchuck okay. once upon a time, not too long ago. Okay, how much time do I have for this story? This is the greatest story ever, okay. so I just knew we had to hit it okay, here. But, it, but it, the story goes back quite a ways. Um, several years ago, we were pulling into our driveway, and there were like four groundhogs out in our gardens. And those gardens were, you know, they support the restaurant, the drugstore, and now the, the black dirt. And we saw these groundhogs, and they took off. <laughs> They're amazingly fast. In the fall, they get really fat because they <laughs> they hibernate over the winter and they're but I mean for such a waddly looking like round animals, <laughs> shocking how fast they are. So we in three days they ate what would have been probably six weeks of salad greens for the restaurant Ugh. and then disappeared for the winter. And oh my gosh. And they didn't even wait for the the um trout. No, right. The, Anchovies there, no. the trout chovies. So the next spring, we had a late snow in March, and they had already started coming out of their den. So from the tracks, we knew where they were. And a cook that still works for me, uh, I don't own any guns. He lent me a, a twenty-two with a, a scope on it. And so we, I was, I saw them one day when I was, you know, we were working in the gardens, and I went over the tool shed, and I got the gun, and. I got behind a wood pile and I was, it had the gun pointed up in the air and I was getting ready to take off the, um, the safety when I thought I accidentally pulled the trigger and shot it off. It was like this pop, pop, pop. And all three groundhogs dropped consecutively. Uh, uh, wow. And I was, I was like, what? And my, my old neighbor next to me, <laughs> Earl Jones, with a cigarette dangling from his mouth and his gun in one hand, walks down across the field and he picks up all three of them by the nape of the neck, sees me, he turns, lifts them up, gives me a big smile and a nod of the head and walks back up to his house. <laughs> now, I met Earl and his wife on one side of me and another couple on the other side of me, an elderly couple also, live off their gardens and they can and jar extensively. 
And Earl swears that he hasn't had meat out of a grocery store in decades, that he was an avid hunter and, and fisherman. And um, so about four or five days later, the guy that lent me his rifle, Jonah, said, hey, I was up in paradise the other day. And <laughs> I was at Earl Jones' place, and he had this barbecued groundhog, and it was delicious. And I had no idea you could eat them. Now, we had previously trapped them and then gone and released them in other places. And then I, we did some research, and we found that this was not a good thing because outside their social construct, apparently they starved to death. And um, we wanted them gone, but I didn't want it to be inhumane. And so we called the Department of Conservation, and they said, we will come out and dispatch them. And I said, well, how long will that take? And they said, well, up to 72 hours. And I, I can't, you can't keep an animal in a cage that long. They will, they will chew all, try and chew through, they'll lose all their teeth. And it, that's not what I wanted either. So I realized that if we were going to get rid of them, I was going to have to, you know, actually, you know, shoot them myself. And then I, now having realized that they were very good eating, I felt that I was, you know, not going to waste the life that this animal was going to give right. without, without eating them. And, uh, I had no idea what I was going to get. I mean, uh, I don't know, it tastes like chicken? I don't know. And so uh, we got the <laughs> first one. Everything tastes like chicken, we right? Got, yeah, right. But this one doesn't. But we, no. uh, we caught the first one, and Earl's son, Barry, came over, and we uh, uh, strung it up in a tree, and then we took, you know, took the pelt off, and he saved the pelt, and uh, then we had to take the glands out of it, and we, and of course, you know, we gutted it, and cars driving by, mouths agape, looking at us. <laughs> On the side of the road, we live right next to Smithville Lake. So there were like that particular day, there was seemed like there were more tourists than usual that were driving by. We were giving them some local flavor, but the meat was really, really good, and it, it tastes like beef. Wow! And so then you fast forward about six months, and I got a call. I guess it was maybe the following spring. I got a call from the Travel Channel, a researcher, and they were talking about coming to Kansas City to do an episode of Andrew Zimmern's Bizarre Foods America. And uh, and they were asking about what, you know, what we were about because they want – that particular show, the Bizarre Foods America, is really not about bizarre foods. It's about chefs in North America that are doing very region-specific foods, foods that are about where they are, which is, of course, what, you know, I'm totally about. And um, they were asking me other questions like, is anyone doing farm-to-table barbecue, which I actually couldn't think of anyone. I still don't think there is anyone doing farm-to-table barbecue. There really isn't, no. It's, it's a niche no. uh, somebody can get into for sure. So we, uh, I told them about Paradise Meats and a few other things, and I didn't hear from them for a couple of months. And I thought, well, they, you know, they weren't sure they were going to come to Kansas City. And then they called back and said, hey, um, we think we're going to come. And I said, hey, you know, in the meantime, since you've called me, um, over the years we've had this groundhog problem. And um, I've caught a couple of groundhogs, and I've got one in the freezer, and I'm currently trying to catch another one right now. And it was odd. The first thing they asked me, does it have its head and feet on? And I thought, oh, they must want it for, like, shock value on television. But then I realized that, Probably not, because people will do almost anything to get on television. They needed to make sure that it was actually a groundhog. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. And so uh, anyway, that, we, uh, that brought you know, Jill, Andrew Zimmern up to my house, and Jill came out, and we 
cooked this groundhog. And then actually while they were in town shooting, I caught another one that I dispatched and then um, did a full uh, uh, the scanning and all that of. And um, so out there, they didn't show that on the show. There's, there is footage of all of that. So if they ever post that on YouTube, there is a how-to on how to properly dress a groundhog somewhere out there. Because I think everyone needs to know that, right, Linz? <laughs> you need to do that sometime. I, I, right. I do really love that you wanted to use every part of it that you could, though. It's nose to tail. Right. Absolutely. And, right. And, and death is a part of life. It's, just, it's a fact. And um, But I, I think unnecessary death is not anything I'm interested in. And if there is a, a necessity, then and if there's a use behind that death, and that, that, that death needs to be respected in, in my mind. And by the way, and as of two days ago, another thing about the groundhogs, um, they've destroyed our foundation. We kept thinking we could put off. I had Of your house? Yes. Oh, we, my we goodness. We have an old uh, stone foundation. It's actually, as my father-in-law, who's an architect, said, it's not a stone foundation. I guess it's called a rubble foundation <laughs> because it's just rocks and concrete stacked together. And the rocks aren't necessarily square. They're just. But we had uh, two days ago a major collapse in the west wall of oh. our basement. I mean, like, I was down, there was, like, a hole, like, two feet by three feet where I'm seeing sunlight come through. Oh, and so no. that was, um, they really destroyed the, our, our house is standing on, <laughs> sitting on so, a post right now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so the, the critter we're talking about tasted like uh, oh what? We well, have to go back to okay, that. let's because, go back to that. Because you said beef. Right. and. Um, well, this particular that's one. That's what was so right. shocking to me. I, I got a tiny taste while they were on. You, they actually ate on set, right? So the cameras are rolling. Oh, wow. Right. So while I was dressing this, not dressing, while I was, uh-huh. I was trussing it to put it onto a, um, to put it onto uh, the skewer on the rotisserie. And this French, uh, the lead camera guy comes up. And I will give you a sanitized version of what I said. But he asked me, what does this groundhog taste like? And I said, well, people say they taste like beef, but I'm pretty sure this one's going to taste like mm-mm, strawberry pie because in the last three days before I killed him, he ate all of our strawberries. And <laughs> the crew got a big laugh out of that. And the director, Patrick, came up to me and said, I never, ever ask people to say anything on camera because we try to keep this as real as possible. But if you could tell that on camera, that would be great. So I did, and it was you know it was kind of funny, and it made it on television. And when we ate the groundhog afterwards, I had all the parts, and I said, "Oh, I forgot. You know, we I have all the have the liver and the kidneys and the you know the lungs, and and I, I meant to stew those, but you know I've been so busy." And I said, but, "You know, I have the heart." And then Andrew says, "Well, let's let's just cook it off real quick." So we took the heart and I put it in the embers of the fireplace and we pulled it out and I sliced it. And I remember when I picked it up, it was, it was super, super sticky. And I put it in my mouth and I saw my eyes got really big. I know that I could feel them and his eyes got really big and it tasted like, it was like a beef lollipop. I mean, it was so sweet. And Andrew looks at me and he says, there's your strawberry pie. And it tasted like strawberry glazed beef. Now, in, in the meat, you didn't notice it, but in the fresh blood, because it had just eaten all of our strawberries, it was crazy. I mean, it was really, I'd never had anything like it. I don't even, I'm speechless, right? It, it was a moment where you're just like, wow, this is 
this is definitely the circle of life. You know, this he was just out there eating the strawberries, right? Yeah. And so you realize that everything's so interconnected and that food that we don't think we want to eat for some reason, we realize that actually there's a purpose for this and that it might be good eating and maybe we should open our minds a little bit. I remember very much having conversations with with Andrew about that during the shoot and he was very much um, advocating that people widen their um, vision of acceptable proteins in their life. And I think You've been doing that for a long time. I think as humans, if we're going to continue to eat proteins and be omnivores, we will have to expand what we're eating because the very narrow band of our diet currently is not sustainable. I think you're right. We're eating a lot of meat, a little more strawberry. (laughs) However you get it might be a good thing. We're eating a lot of meat, but we're eating just uh, meat that is not efficient to raise and, uh, you know, the, you know, Andrew made a living going around the world and eating bugs. But the fact is, is most of the world, insects are a part of the diet of more of the world than it isn't part of the diet of. Mm. And so I think it's opening your mind to some of that because most of us see a bug in our drink. And my dad always used to say to me, it's protein, but <laughs> that's not usually what people, they want to get it out of there. So, you know, it's it's a different viewpoint on food. And I thought that that was well displayed at your house that day. Oh, thank you. You know, while you're telling that story, uh, just listening to you talk about how much, what did you say, six weeks worth of greens for your restaurant? Yeah, these uh, groundhogs, by the way, are really clean animals, and um, they are vegetarians. And yeah, it was, uh, and when they were getting ready to go into hibernation, yeah, they apparently have voracious appetites. I, I'm just thinking, how big is this garden? This is at your home? Oh, yeah. It's, um, oh, we have nearly an acre planted, but it's planted in a way that was designed for urban rooftop gardening, so to hmm. get high yield. So it's uh, a high yield production. Although this year, uh, we didn't plant anything this year because we knew we were going to be very busy. We thought right now we'd be running two restaurants. And and then the, boy, uh the drought is devastating. Um, that area has gotten even less rain than the areas to the north and the south. I and mean, it's rained a lot here down around the plaza where we didn't get any rain up there. And there was a point last week, I think, I think it was last week, where I was walking around the yard and there was literally, and I'm not, this is not hyperbole, there was not one single green blade of grass in our yard. Oh. I think the other piece of your yard that's very interesting, though, um, is that your outdoor kitchen is actually probably, square footage-wise, close to or larger than your house. Um, you know what? I, I've, if you look at it on Google Maps, I'm, I think it is larger. <laughs> but the, <laughs> so, ha- the house is only 700. Well, the house is... It's, it's teeny. It's small. Like, yeah. As Camille always says, we lived in a tiny home before tiny homes were cool. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, years ago, um, I brought somebody to your restaurant to eat, um, and he's been sadly in the news lately, um, Jonathan Gold. He was the restaurant critic for the LA Times and passed away um, somewhat, I think, suddenly uh, last month. And you wrote a really nice Instagram uh, tribute to him. Tell me about what you remember about that night. It was probably about 10 years ago, I think. I think what I remember is bringing out to the table 
um, some ceviche from a fish that comes from Tyler Fawcett, this hybrid bass. And it In is, Colorado, isn't yeah, it? And it's, it's yeah, it's super, super clean. He's never, ever had a parasite found on any of his product. And it's the clean, by far the cleanest fish or seafood I've ever worked with. And, um, and we had, uh, from time to time, we'd use... Uh, plates and things that actually came from the drugstore. And I served this in an old uh, banana split glass plate. And, wow. and I was telling him about the fish, and he was kind of looking at me and says, you know, I have a real issue with people trying to serve raw fish that shouldn't be served raw. <laughs> and I said, I promise oh. you this fish is very, very good. But I, I, I remember thinking that was uh, straight up and, and honest. And... Uh, you know, before that, before I had met him, I, and I said, you know, I used to read you in the old L.A. Weekly, and um, you know, he had a he had a um, I can't remember what the name of his column was, but he had a column. He wrote about music, but he also had a column that was just about the underbelly of L.A. And we were fairly close in age, and also a little bit in the same circles. And he had. Uh, graduated as an art major and I was in art school at the time and uh, uh, anyway I always really liked his writing and um, he's the only person who's ever um, been granted won a Pulitzer Prize for restaurant criticism so that says something about his writing ability which was in engrossing I think Um, Jill if somebody's never heard of Jonathan Gold is there any like how big was he he was pretty huge, um, just in the culinary world. Um, yeah, I think people like Jonathan and others, there were a lot of responses to Jonathan's Instagram that um, a lot of people had lived in L.A. and they knew him. What Jonathan was uh, really, gold was really amazing, <laughs> I should clarify here, really um, wonderful about doing was finding um, ethnic food. And when you look for that in L.A., that is actually in unusual places, strip malls, um, where a lot of critics don't really want to go to strip mall restaurants because they seem like boxes and they seem not very interesting. But he would seek them out. He would drive all over L.A. in a very gas-guzzling uh, vehicle. <laughs> uh, he had a little pickup, and he would find these places. Um, he would understand their food. He was incredibly intelligent, and he just knew so much. He read so much. Um, and he would really get to know the people. And he had a wonderful way of, I think, um, explaining the food and criticizing the food, but never in a mean-spirited way. Um, and he was one of the early people to sort of unmask himself. You know, critics have gone uh, and been anonymous, hopefully, for many years. But with social media, it's a little harder to do that. There was a film that came out, um, City of Gold, which I think um, – I'd highly recommend to people if they want to know a little bit more about his life. Um, it came out in 2016, and you follow along as he tootles all around L.A. looking for wonderful food. I don't think it would be unfair to say that he was widely considered the most important food writer in America. Wow. And he ate at Justice Truck Store. And would you, is that, he did. Do you think is that over the top? I, I, think, I, I think he, yeah, I think he's... I mean, if, if not the, well, yes, he's the, a titan at least, you know, a legend. Among a very, yeah. very small number of people, for sure. Yeah. yeah, and very approachable. 
So I met him while he was judging a chicken contest for um, Frank Reese for his... Frank does the heritage turkeys, um, and also he was trying to do heritage chicken at the time. So he flew Molly O'Neill and um, Jonathan in to be judges with Jasper Mirable, and I think there was one other judge I'm not remembering. So after I, I got to kind of drive around with them as I'm working on that story all day, and at the end of the day, you know, he's giving me advice, and he's because I'm a new reviewer, I don't know exactly how to do this. And he's telling me, you need a higher social media presence too. And where should we go for dinner? <laughs> Which stood me aback. And I'm like, he goes, can you go out to dinner? I said, sure, let's go to dinner and gave him a list. And um, he chose justice off that list based on descriptions I gave him and, and away we went. And it was just a really, um, I'm happy to have had that experience. He, he, um, when uh, we did a film shoot for, <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing. I was asked to do a three-day film sh- shoot for Kashi Grains. I'm like, oh, that's great. I love those brothers. They, you know, I used to buy their uh, cereal at Rainbow Food Co-op in San Francisco. Mm. And so we did this three-day f- film shoot, and uh, one of the, the crew was all from L.A., by the way, in that film shoot, I found out, didn't realize it at the time, I found out later that Kellogg's had bought out Kashi and Monsanto owns Kellogg. I had no idea. It's very antithetical to my brand. But um, one of the guys that was part of the, the filming went back to L.A. and wrote Jonathan Gold and said, I heard you had eaten at Justice Drugstore in Smithville, Missouri. Uh, what did you think? And um, Jonathan's response, I'm not going to repeat it, but it was, well, he, he did say he thought we were one of the best nose-to-tail, farm-to-table restaurants in the country. And he also said, I don't know why he hasn't won a James Beard Award. High praise. Very. Uh, and it was, it was very it was very kind. But uh, a couple of years after that, I just wrote kind of anonymously, you know, hey, I'm going to be in L.A. And um, where you know, there are any places that you suggest I eat. And I don't know how many emails he gets, but he sent me back this very detailed email on where I should go and why. And, uh, I mean, I, I feel like that he he definitely took the time to to give time to everybody, not just, you know, people that maybe he deemed important, but just the every the everyday guy, the everyday person. Well, I think food can be sometimes a little um, highfalutin, some, you know. Intimidating. So, intimidating, yeah, all of those things. Um, and so people shy away from it, but he had a way of making you feel very comfortable, even though he was quite the expert on whatever he was covering at the time. If he wanted to go into some really esoteric uh, debate, he was about food, that he was the person to go to. <laughs> I just want to say, if you're ever in L.A. and you want to try some truly amazing ethnic food, uh, Monterey Boulevard is a long strip of just strip malls with amazing restaurants all up and down it. Foods of different Asian ethnicities, that probably exist on that strip that don't exist anywhere else in the world outside of the native country that that said restaurant is representing. Now I need to get to L.A. It definitely made me want to go after watching um, City of Gold, you know, and really explore. And I was always hoping I could do that with with Jonathan Gold, but I will do it um, in his honor. Um, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your relationship with Camille, she is part of the restaurant, and I think sometimes you get the lion's share of the attention, as chefs do, um, but tell me a little bit about that relationship. You once told me that um, your restaurant is your child, so 
How's the family doing? <laughs> um, you know, I used to say, people would say, uh, so what dishes do you recommend? I said, you know, I can't because these dishes are like my children. I spend so much time developing them. And at the drugstore, it usually took between 8 and 12 weeks to think of and then flesh out a dish. And one time this woman said, well, it's nothing like children. I said, well, you know, for me it is. And then she really went on the attack. And so I quit saying that because I got <laughs> shy. <laughs> so, so I, I thought it was so, a fair so, assessment of, you know, where you're putting your so, priorities. So all apologies to people with real children. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I have real children. I was not offended. Okay. I, and Lindsay's about to have a real child. That's right. Not offended. So, yeah, the restaurant is... It is like our child, and it's something that we've tried to cultivate and bring into the world. Hopefully, you know, you hope that your children will maybe make a difference, and we've hoped that our restaurants will and, and maybe touch someone in some way, in a positive way. And, and it's also very personal. I mean, um, I'm sure other chefs and restaurant owners feel this way, but when we get especially uh, when we get a, a, a bad review online or someone emails us. And sometimes they're, you know, it's easy to take pock shots from outside when, especially in anonymity, and, and they can be so personal. And even when they're not personal, though, it's, it's um, really, uh, it can be kind of devastating for me. Um, I mentioned earlier, and I tell people all the time, I mentioned earlier about having really serious OCD, and I, and I do, and it's, wrapped in this tightly wound ball of low self-esteem that works for me, that I, I that low self-esteem is the drive, and I know it's not good enough, and that fear of failure is very necessary in the restaurant world because it is very real. It is very difficult to open a restaurant and sustain it and make a living from it. And our restaurants, both of them, you know, we, the way they look, everything is, has our imprint on it. And, uh, the, you know, it's not like we have a design team, they design it, and we go in. I mean, we were at Black Dirt, and someone comes uh, in. A chandelier, you must yeah, talk right. about. <laughs> but at Black Dirt, we got an email like a week ago, and, and, you know, and we are human, and things do go wrong. I can't believe, you know, we had uh, someone who is really good that works for us, was making the bread, forgot to put salt in it, and... And we're really proud of our bread. And this was our dinner bread. And so the we got this email from someone that, you know, they they complained about some things that maybe weren't legitimate. And then they complained about a couple of things that I, I think were, and it does happen. And, um, and I wish they had told us at that moment that night so we could have taken care of it right then. But then as a pox shot... They said, and I'm not going to even go into the atmosphere in, of the place. And, and uh, Now, the atmosphere of Justice Drugstore was very much you and Camille on the walls and the tables. Right. Black Dirt also has that. And um, there's, I interrupted you, but that chandelier, okay, it's not really a chandelier. It's a tree root hanging from the ceiling. That is so incredibly you if people don't get that it's very um, personal it, it's very yeah. personal so that, yeah that tree was born out of a we were having a design meeting with our architects and the lighting subcontractors and um, the lighting subcontractors were going through their presentation and I kept looking across the table at Camille and I could see that she was as displeased as I was and I, I felt like that it, it just felt like every other 
upscale restaurant we had been to in New York, Chicago, San Francisco in the previous five to seven years, and it it didn't feel specific to us or our space. And and I called them out on it, and I said, I I I'm, I tend to be blunt. My uh, social skills aren't the best, and I, I said, frankly, this feels lazy, and I think you're selling us something that you've already sold to someone else, and you didn't do any legwork on our project. And by the looks on their faces, I think I busted them. But anyway, so, uh, and I said, you know, I want my menu. I, I'm trying to do something that is, you know, about here and says something about here. I said, the restaurant's called Black Dirt. I mean, we should be, it's like we're, you know, have a, a chandelier, or like we're uh, sitting under the root ball of a tree. And uh, one of the junior architects kind of said, wow, that'd be really cool. Too bad we can't do that. And I tend to be excitable, and I jumped up <laughs> and I said, no, we can do this. I live out in the country with a bunch of crazy hillbillies that have all kinds of crazy equipment. We can make this happen. And I, and I, and it, was, it was more adamant than I'm presenting right now. And uh, <laughs> they are, everyone looked at me like, yeah, that's going to happen. But within two days, uh, I had cut down a tree with a neighbor. It took me a couple of days to research what kind of tree I wanted. I wanted a very specific shaped root ball. And uh, hackberry seemed to be what I wanted. And there's a small derelict property up where we live in Paradise. Up in Paradise, where we live, you can't build unless you have three acres or if you move into a house that's already there. Well, there are a lot of vacant lots where over the years a house burned down and then no one rebuilt on it because there was no reason to build in Paradise until the lake was – Smithville Lake was built. But so there's a lot of derelict properties that aren't really worth anything. So it's just – underbrush and growth on them. So we found this tree. We cut it down. We cut the top into firewood. Uh, we got a bobcat and got it out there and then um, uh, managed to cut the roots and got it out, then got a high loader and then drove it up the street to a barn that is around the corner from where we live and uh, had an old, um, it's called a cherry picker or a uh, an engine hoist that was it's handmade. It was made for uh, agricultural motors. So it's a really heavy duty and we tried to lift this tree, and it almost flipped the, the, oh my gosh. the hoist over. So we had to stack railroad ties on the back of this engine hoist to lift this this tree, this root ball up. And we uh, we got it up, and I spent oh, probably two weeks power washing in it, trying to because I had to wash it and then let it dry, and hopefully like the dirt clods would would shrink, and then wash it again, and then let it dry, and and then we. Um, Took it down into Smithville. Well, first I had to get when I took get, took pictures of it, sent them to the architects, and they saw that I was serious. They <laughs> suddenly not like, pulling your leg like, here. Yeah, not, they they suddenly like, well, we need to get engineering on this because we can't just hang. <laughs> so I had to get I had to get the tree. Uh, I had to get it weighed. So I stuck it on a trailer. I drove up to Plattsburgh to the farmers co-op, waited at the grain elevator, ran back to Paradise, hoisted the tree back off the trailer, went back up. Weighed the rig again. Of course, the difference is was what the tree was. And at that time, once we got all the mud and the dirt and everything off of it, it was uh, about seven hundred and sixty pounds. Oh wow! Is yeah. it fragile on the bottom? I mean, these are the roots are smaller, obviously. Some, but... some of them are more fragile than others. And uh, so we we I took it down into Smithville and hung it in uh, in a friend's shop, and we were curing it, <laughs> and then. <laughs> and then Bugs started coming out of it. <laughs> and, oh my! And we found sawdust on the floor under it. And by that by that time, I'd already had 
I mean, probably, I don't know, 150 hours in this thing. <laughs> so, so we hauled it out and put a big tarp over it and we bug bombed it. And then, I, you know, and then we, when we ended up um, putting on a hazmat suit and we sprayed it with, with lacquer and decided to spray it enough that we thought anything that might be in it surely would suffocate from fumes or not be able to get out. And, um, and then when we, when we took it down to, um, to raise it up, I mean, that was a big production. Um, we got the thing up in the air. And by the way, this is something I hadn't realized that um, when things die, they atrophy. The cells in them shrink, they dry up. This tree was huge when we cut it down. And it's about a third the size now as it was when we, uh, I, and I, when we finally got it up. I, you know, people, it's, I don't know, other people say, oh, it's really, really cool. And I was like, yeah, but it's supposed to be so much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Still not completely satisfied. No, that's, my, that's right. That's right. My, but my, it's so much a piece of you. And it's a very interesting, um, you know, somebody could have said, hey, we'll have an artist make something that looks like a right. big hackberry tree. But instead, I mean, yeah, we did it like ourselves. like it's, with your food, this is the intensity with which you bring uh, just about any everything. every project. I've, I've been, you know, takes this much intensity for you. I've been asked what it would take, you know, to have someone say, "If I want to put something <laughs> like this in my house, you put a dollar amount." And I, I kind of figured out the, <laughs> the hours and plus the heavy equipment that had to be used and everything. I mean, I don't know, twenty five, twenty seven thousand wow. dollars, you know, to get a chandelier like this put in your house. So the next time you all walk into Black Dirt, look at the chandelier. And I'm just sitting here thinking, this had to be on, this wasn't even on the list of things you were thinking you had to do to get a restaurant ready to open. (laughs) This wasn't even on it. No, you're right. It went, I went from completely off my radar to working on this project within 48 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Did that, did that delay opening at all? Or you just, we'll get it done. We'll figure it out. It didn't delay opening. That's funny. That also says a lot about me. Squirrel. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but that's, what we, that's, I think, what the dining public loves about you. It's like, yeah. And it, uh, they don't often see all the stories that it takes to get there, but I think they appreciate that once they hear it. So that's what I was hoping we could get to in this profile yeah. edition. So. Thank you for giving us a peek into what it takes to keep Black Dirt running and, and what it took to bring Justice Drugstore to life. And... I mean, I'm, I I can't ask you a time frame of when you think you'll be back with justice. You don't know quite yet, do you? No, it, it's, you know, it is going to happen. We, I mean, we wouldn't have taken the effort to dismantle everything and to put it into storage. It would have been a lot easier to sell off all of that stuff. Mm. And, uh, but, and someone said, like, you know, you can, why don't you just sell it? And then later you can just buy new used equipment. And I said, but no, I take care of my equipment. When I buy it mm. used, I don't know what, you know, what kind of shape it's going to be in. So, but it's... Uh, it's all in uh, in a cave off 435 now. <laughs> Do you are you feeling two years, five years? Well, what about that? Well, I think that by the time we find a building and then we get a design and then we get drawings and then we get it done. I mean, it would be I think it would be impossible to have it be less than I mean, well, put it this way, black dirt. When we found that space. To get it all together and to get it off the ground, to get it open, took three and a half years. Three and a half. But that was maybe longer than, than normal. Maybe in the meantime, I can get you out to Powell Gardens to relive um, some of your farm dinners. Ooh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Not, you know, we'll fill that space until you get, actually Jill get it up and running again. Earlier this year, I said, hey, you know, this fall, can you do some farm dinners out at Powell Gardens? I said, Jill, just getting one restaurant off the ground, I'll be running two. And like now I'm thinking like, 
yeah, I could have done that. Because <laughs> for you, well, just wanting, running I, one restaurant, I right? I, no, I didn't know at the time that I, mean, I really thought, you know, we were, we right. were going to have, you know, not just opening a new restaurant, but really it didn't like, it would have been like opening two restaurants because we had had to hire all new staff and get it off the ground and, and actually putting the drugstore off a little bit has uh, relieved the stress level in mm. Camille and I for sure. My, my, I'm gonna, you mentioned Camille earlier and I didn't really get a chance. She is the unsung hero. Mm. Um, I got uh, pretty sick back in April and I missed, I've never missed more than a few days of work and it's really rare for me to miss work at all. I missed, missed a month and um, Camille can run a restaurant on her own. I mean, I'm the face of it, but Honestly, you know, I can't run a restaurant. I mean, I, I don't know how to pay the bills. I don't know how uh, to do payroll. I don't know all of the the business side of it. I don't know any of the passwords. Um, <laughs> if I was gone for a month and things ran along fine, if she were gone for three days, there would be nothing but, but a pile of ash. <laughs> <laughs> to Camille. Yeah, that, that's a fact. Cheers. Yes, it's it's very true. She does a lot of lot of good work behind the scenes that no one sees. Yeah, I know. So. And not to mention was our head server at the drugstore for over 10 years. I mean, mm. we, we lived on her tips for 10 years. Oh, wow. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. The stories could go on and on. Yes. But um, we have to cut it off somewhere. So maybe a portrait edition to down the road, three and a half years from now or so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank Thank you. you. We'll see you next time on Chew Diligence.